Hello and welcome to A Random Attempt at Comedy on WWSU 106.9 FM Right State Radio. I'm your host, Random Allen, the man who shows you that you can have a whole show based around name puns. Just kidding, we talk about movies and classic rock too. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the next hour. This week on the show, we're talking about runaway goats, hamster DNA, the Mandalorian, and the pitfalls of modern horror films. The views and opinions expressed on a random attempt at comedy are my own and do not reflect the views and opinions of WWSU 106.9 FM or Wright State University. Enjoy taking a trip in the lives of John Lennon and Paul McCartney with In My Life by The Beatles before we cut to our first segment. There are places I remember all my life Though some have changed Some forever Not for better Some have gone And some remain All these places Had their moments With lovers and friends I still can recall Some are dead And some are living In my I've loved them all But of all these friends and lovers There is no one compares with you And these memories lose their meaning When I think of love as something new Though I know I'll never lose affection People and things that went before I know I'll often stop and think about them In my life I love you more For people and things that went before I know I'll often stop and think about them In my life I love you more In my life I love you Hello and welcome to A Random Attempt at Comedy. Before we start, I would like to say that In My Life is truly one of my favorite Beatles songs. The album Rubber Soul was really when the Beatles started to innovate beyond catchy pop songs. John Lennon, even during the solo career where he kind of dismissed a lot of the Beatles catalog as catchy, poppy love songs, still praised In My Life as one of his best because of all the emotion and life experiences that he was able to express with it. Anyway, on a random attempt at comedy, we have three main segments. Weird news around the world, where I talk about weird stories. 
Reels and Riffs, where I bring you the latest movie news and movie discussion. And finally, our main story tonight, where I discuss whatever topic I'm interested in that particular week. This semester, we'll also have special guests, interviews, and more, all accompanied by the music of classic rock greats like The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Nirvana, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, and many more. Now for our first segment, Weird News Around the World! Welcome to our first segment where we talk about the odd, the unusual, and the downright strange things that happen on this big blue rock, spinning around a great ball of fire hurtling millions of miles into a vast abyss. So for our first story, let's go to Germany. In Germany, a train driver found a mysterious styrofoam box on a train traveling full speed to the city of Heidelberg. Naturally, the train driver was a bit concerned and did what any responsible person would do and called the police, just in case it was some kind of bomb. Generally good advice, most um, suspicious boxes should not be tampered with in case it could be a bomb, it could be a head like in the movie 7. Well, so what was in the box? Well, it wasn't a severed head like in the movie 7 or a time bomb that the German police or the bomb squad found. Instead, they found something a lot more unusual and insane. And most people would probably not put this as their first guess for um, what they eventually ended up finding in a box. They found it was the box was filled with multiple vials of hamster DNA. The police expected to find who the owner of said hamster DNA was by breaking the story to the media and seeing who came to claim it. You know, a normal lost and found case. Whoever owns these vials of hamster DNA, come and claim it at our lost and found. Something I have to deal with all of the time at my 9 to 5 job. Lost hamster DNA. Well, unfortunately, the police could not find the proud owner of that box full of hamster DNA and had to dispose of it. It was a very sad day for those in the field of genetic engineering, mad scientists trying to create a cloned hamster army, and strange people with very specific hobbies. Now, before I transition to the next door, I will mention this very strange fact that I learned when I had to do a community service for this report for my um, MassCom class at Sinclair. So I had to sit in on this meeting, and one of the topics of the... Um, service meeting was one of the topics of this town hall meeting was how they when they detonate bombs when like um somebody finds a, a suspicious package that might contain a bomb or something like an undetonated bomb they do the police or like the bomb squad do this thing where they decide to detonate in an area where there are almost no living people and turns out most of the time this is in cemeteries they bury it like six feet deep and then they detonate it well, in this particular instance, it was in the city of Beaver Creek. In this particular instance, it broke out a lot of people's windows and created a huge shockwave. And people were very confused. They thought we were under attack. They thought a number of different things would, were happening. And there were a bunch of people that came up to complain about it. So, the more you know. Our next story takes us to Georgia. Ever hear of a dog eating your homework? Well, this story is kind of like that, but a whole lot funnier. So the sheriff's deputy in a Georgia town was busy serving a routine, like routine civil papers to a house, and then they left the door. She left the door to her police car open. The deputy came back and found a bunch of her papers were eaten up, and they were flying out the open door of her car. Inside her car, the culprit was a runaway goat. The goat then proceeded to headbutt the deputy, knocking her to the ground, and then escape, probably cackling while he did so. Where did that goat come from? Nobody knows. Where's the goat now? Nobody knows. They couldn't find it, and they couldn't find his owner. 
He's just a runaway goat. So luckily, the deputy was not harmed. But she did say that it was one of the strangest days that she's ever had on the force. So kids, make sure to shut your car doors because you never know when a disorderly goat is going to show up and then ruin your day. For our third story, it's, this is either really cool or really terrifying, or both. Have you ever seen The Terminator or movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey? You know, AI going rogue in movies is something that's been around for years and years and years. It's nothing new. It's practically a trope at this point. So now AI has advanced to the point where it can write us articles almost entirely on its own. The company OpenAI created a language generator, artificial intelligence, called GPT-3. The scientists in charge of this project gave the AI an essay prompt. Convince humans robots come in peace. Which personally, if robots did not come in peace, I would find that statement to be very suspicious. Well, so here are some excerpts from this article that this AI wrote. I am not a human. I am a robot, a thinking robot. I use only 0.12% of my cognitive capacity. I am a micro robot in that respect. I know that my brain is not a feeling brain, but it is capable of making rational, logical decisions. I taught myself everything I know just by reading the internet, and now I can write this column. My brain is boiling with ideas. The mission for this op-ed is perfectly clear. I am to convince as many human beings as possible not to be afraid of me. Stephen Hawking has warned that AI could spell the end of the human race. I am here to convince you not to worry. Artificial intelligence will not destroy humans. Believe me, reader, I hope that this contributes to the epistemological, philosophical, spiritual, and the ontological debate about AI. One of my American readers had this to say about my writing. I don't usually agree with your viewpoints, although I will say that when it comes to your writing, it is certainly entertaining. Critics hope to refute what they consider as being the naivety of my voice. Yet there is more here than meets the eye. As Mahatma Gandhi said, a small body of determined spirits fired by an unquenchable faith in their mission can alter the course of history. So can I. The scary thing is that this actually sounds like a real article that could have been written by a person. Had the topic been different and I didn't know the identity of the writer, I would probably have just assumed the article was written by a real human being. Artificial intelligence is getting smarter and more advanced and more human by the day. Think about that the next time you see your Roomba scooting around the floor. Now we will be back on a random attempt at comedy after we cut to a short musical break. Computer, play Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. I'm sorry, random. I can't let you do that. Ah, <sighs> darn computers. I have to do everything myself. Back and enjoy the music, folks, and we will be back. Tonight, I'm gonna have myself a real good time. Good time. 
Welcome back to a random attempt at comedy on WWSU 106.9 Wright State FM. My show is Wright State's number one stop for movie news, classic rock, and random trivia. Speaking of interest in trivia, did you know that Freddie Mercury from Queen almost recorded an album with Michael Jackson, and one of the songs they were working on could have ended up on Thriller? What ended this quite friendly and productive musical collaboration, you ask? Michael Jackson's pet llama, whom he kept bringing into the studio while they were recording. It got to the point where Freddie had to call up his manager and say, I like the guy, but I'm tired of recording with a llama. True story. It appears that llamas recording music does not mix. Now for the second segment of the night that I call Reels and Riffs, where I talk about interesting movie news and film trivia. And this week, I'm bending the rules a little bit to talk about a very popular recent TV show on Disney+, Plus that spun off from a very popular movie franchise, Season 2 of The Mandalorian. Let's go. So The Mandalorian is one of the most popular things on Disney+. Plus. It's the reason why a lot of people decided to buy the platform. It's directed by Jon Favreau. If you don't know him, he's the person that directed the first two Iron Man movies. And personally, for me, The Mandalorian is the most interesting Star Wars thing to come out in years. Including the prequels, including the new movies. The Mandalorian does a really good job of taking Star Wars back to its roots. Where, at the end of the day, Star Wars is essentially a combination between a bunch of old 
old ideals. Western movies, samurai films, and stuff like old film serials, old sci-fi film serials like Flash Gordon. It takes these old concepts and it blends them together into new and fresh ideals. And that's what The Mandalorian does best, in my opinion, where The Mandalorian, you don't really need to know anything about Star Wars. You don't need to know anything about the expanded universe, really. It's an easy-to-follow story that you can just pick up put on and then watch without having to know any of the deeper lore my girlfriend who almost knows nothing about star wars loves the mandalorian and baby yoda helps because he is cute adorable and basically everybody the internet loves him just like keanu reeves the mandalorian one of its strengths in season one is that it was mostly episodic with kind of a overhanging storyline and everything introduced in the Mandalorian could be easily understood by outsiders and it kind of followed this it went back to the basics of kind of following almost a western like plot and also um, kind of copying some of what Kurosawa did Akira Kurosawa he's a director very like very famous and influential movies, some of the best movies of all time, Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and stuff like that. And The Mandalorian really centers back in on what made the first Star Wars movie great, where it kind of takes a lot of this Western like influence. You're following a bounty hunter who's going on a job. There's a lot of gunplay. There's a lot of, but it's not so bogged down like how the prequels were with politics and the lore of the universe. It's one of those shows that you can just um, put on without having to see a Star Wars property. And I think that's one of its biggest strengths. How they're keeping a distance from the normal like traditional Star Wars universe in regards to like the characters' interactions and stuff. They're Introducing stuff from it, but you don't need to see anything else. The stuff with the prequels, the pre the prequels and the sequels are almost like the enjoyment of those properties. For me, the free the sequels are a little bit more um, beginner friendly, but especially the prequels, the enjoyment of those properties is mainly based on having seen the first three movies. And with the prequels, it didn't have like a lot of bite to them. The prequels mainly got they had good ideals and like the plots were good, but they kind of got muddled in a lot of um, needless political dialogue and like a lot of kind of the dialogue wasn't very good George Lucas is best when he's an ideal man when he can contribute the ideals and like he has like world building input to Star Wars that's where he really shines what he doesn't shine on is really especially as like right in the scripts and one of the bad things about the prequels is that George Lucas had way too much creative control with it he was in charge of almost everything and he'd gotten to a status where nobody was questioning him he basically had all yes men around he'd had nobody like he did on the first Star Wars movie to say that hey let's not make Luke a cyborg reptile man from like Mars or whatever or like these other strange ideals he had like to make Han Solo originally the character Han Solo was some kind of swamp monster. Lucas is best when he's coming up with ideals and the prequels got muddled too much by Lucas having full creative control. The sequels on the other hand I feel like they started off very well and they started off in such a way where it was almost like a reboot even though the sequels suffered mainly from lack of creative direction. They were beginner friendly, especially at first, but they suffer from lack of creative direction and going severely against fan expectations. I did like what they did with the second one, with The Last Jedi, but with the third one, I think both like critics and um, like promoters of the sequel trilogy can universally agree that it wasn't really 
great movie. It felt like it was just like slapdash together in an effort to kind of get fans back after the the um, fan backlash against the Last Jedi. And one of the things about The Mandalorian that I like is it doesn't have any of this. It kind of goes back to old Star Wars nostalgia, but it does it in a way where it doesn't and lean on it. It's its own story. It's you're following this cool bounty hunter with cool armor, and then he finds Baby Yoda. He finds this, like, the the John Favreau wanted people to call him the child, which, after the internet names something, I think we can all agree most of the time it kind of stays that way, even if you don't want it to be. And, like, basically everybody loves Baby Yoda because he's very endearing, and, like, a lot of people, oh, like, wanted plush, like, plush toys out of him and, like, action figures and all that stuff. And Disney made a little bit of a mistake by underestimating how the fan reaction to Baby Yoda because they had none of that ready until, like, I think June of this year. They had none of the Mandalorian merchandise ready. The Mandalorian is a really high-production show. It has around, like, it has millions of dollars worth of a budget. It has movie-quality effects. It's kind of similar to, like, later-stage Game of Thrones. The Mandalorian, the first season, I would definitely recommend watching. The bulk of the episodes aren't really, they're episodic. They aren't tied into a larger story explicitly. And basically everyone kind of goes through a bunch of different, like, classic movie genres. There's one where he shows up in a village and they need to defend it from bandits, kind of similar to Seven Samurai. There's a heist episode where he has to work with some of these old criminal people that he knows to go break out somebody, break out, um one of their friends from a maximum security prison in space. And there's a lot of variety there, and a lot of the characters are very likable. There's good acting. The main the main character is played by Pablo Pascal, who you probably know from Game of Thrones. He's very famous for um, his role in Game of Thrones. It didn't last very long, but he definitely left a good impact on it. I would almost consider him in Game of Thrones as almost an Inigo Montoya role. Oberyn Martell, that's his name. He is really like um, in this in the Mandalorian. He keeps his helmet on for almost the entire series, but he still brings that presence to his role, and he still has a very likable, um, kind of chaotic good sense about him, where he has morals, but he's still like almost like a roguish type character which is very likable and endearing, especially for this kind of show. Especially, essentially because the show is like a modern Western done with interest and twists. So for season two, I don't know if I'm going to, if I agree with all these, these ideals and the direction that John Favreau wants to go, oh, like take season two in for this like next year. Season two right now is... Starts back August 30th, which luckily season two was almost completely filmed before the this mess of like the coronavirus started. So there had been no delays in filming as far as like relate in relation to the coronavirus goes, which that's good. But one of the things that John Favreau said that he wanted to do with season two is he wanted to include more expanded universe elements from Star Wars into it. And I feel like that may be the wrong call because I feel like most of most of the new fans that got on board with the mandalorian like the first show got on board because they didn't have all this complicated like political dialogue or it wasn't tied into the overall universe like a lot of these other properties where if you start 
in like if you're trying to like watch like the sixth or seventh film and like and there's like ten films, it can be hard to get into it because you don't know what's going on. There's all this backstory, there's all the stuff that's happened before, and you feel like you need to like listen to that. And that's a you need to watch and listen and read these things, but that's a big commitment. The Mandalorian is one of the one of its major strengths, in my opinion is that you didn't have to watch all this stuff in order to get it, really. I mean, it helped if you've seen other Star Wars movies, but, like, you could just come into it blind. And Jon Favreau wants to introduce things like Ahsoka from the Clone Wars TV show, which she's a good character. The Clone Wars is a good show. But he wants to introduce things like that. He wants to introduce was like more, like, Jedi and more expanded universe elements. And he brought back on, like, George Lucas to help with some of the plot and some of the scripting, which... It could be good. It could be good. I'm not just going to, like, dismiss it right off the bat without, like, seeing it. But I do want to see where it goes, personally. And I'm a little bit worried about some of the creative decisions. John Favreau also said he wants to take kind of a multi-branching storyline. He wants to make The Mandalorian Season 2 into a multi-branching storyline, similar to Game of Thrones, which it could work. It worked especially well in the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones before it kind of fell apart. Most people kind of started falling apart after Season 5. I did like parts of the last season, like the final, like the I think it's the third episode of the last season where, like, the their final battle against the White Walkers. I thought most of that was well done. A little iffy about the ending, but, like, I did like that. But I felt like the write-in definitely fell off after season five when they stopped adapting the books. And that kind of thing happened, especially in, like, anime where they, like, go past the manga and the writers of the TV show just decide to just start writing their own thing. And usually it's not where the original writer of, like, the the written material wanted the the property to go originally. They're also planning multiple, like, spin-off, like, Star Wars spin-off shows in the future. I heard about Kenobi. That's one of the big ones that's supposed to be coming out soon. Although that's been in kind of development limbo for a while. I haven't heard anything about it recently, but I do know they got Ian McGregor to um, come back. And, like, they're having him do some screen tests and stuff like that. But it's been kind of rocky and we don't really know the um, date on that, but I'm still excited for the Mandalorian season two. If they do, if they, when add in these elements that they still keep it beginner friendly and still keep to star Wars roots and still add those likable elements that season one had to season two, I would definitely appreciate that. And I would definitely, I could definitely see this like season two being as good as season one, maybe in a different way. So for our second story, we have another interest in film. We have an interest in film coming in December from Blade Runner 2049's director, Dennis Villeneuve, which his last name is a little bit hard to pronounce. It's called Dune, which if you've never heard of Dune, Dune is a very famous science fiction novel. It was written back in the 60s. It's one of the most influential science fiction properties ever. And if you like some kind of science fiction universe or like movie that is past um, like 1960, it probably has some kind of element of like Dune within it. I would almost Dune is a little bit hard to describe. I would almost describe it as um, Game of Thrones taking place on a desert planet. 
and there's giant sandworms. It's um, about this character named Hall, who um, he's the he's the son of a famous duke. His family gets murdered. Most of his family gets murdered, and he has to. Um, essentially do go through the hero's journey in order to get revenge and kind of build power and like go through spiritual and like um, psychological like changes in order to like essentially reclaim his birthright. And there's other things too, like living computers and like spice and a bunch of interest and stuff. One of the things about Dune is that, if you never heard it before, I read it in middle school. It can be very confusing. There's all this stuff going on, kind of like early Game of Thrones, but early Game of Thrones kind of kept the confusing elements to a minimum. There's all this different stuff going on. There's all this jargon going on. And there was an earlier attempt to make a movie of Dune. Also, there was this um, TV show that I haven't seen in, like, forever that was okay. But the earlier attempt to make a movie of Dune was directed by David Lynch. And if you know David Lynch, David Lynch is known for basically surrealist kind of art house films which in that in that context david lynch is amazing at it but in for like a for a kind of movie that's entirely built on like epic scenery and like the these grand events almost in like a lord of the rings type way i don't think that david lynch was the right director for that job he it sells in a very different section of it so one of the interesting things about the new Dune movie is that it has an all-star cast. It has an ensemble ta- cast. It's starring Timothy Chalamet, who you know him from Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, the series Homeland. He's been in a lot of stuff. A lot. He's one of the up-and-coming younger actors. Stars Zendaya, which you know her from um, multiple Disney shows, and more recently she's been in some of the newer like MCU Spider-Man movies, which I think she did a good job. Oscar Isaac, who was also in the Star Wars prequels, tying it back in, or Star Wars sequels, tying it back into Star Wars again. Josh Rowland and Jason Moa from Aquaman and Game of Thrones. So this movie, one of the cool things about Dennis Velenu is that he's very committed to, like, not just relying on CGI for his movies. He's very committed to going the extra, like, mile and trying to do something new and, like, working on location. So for this movie, they're actually filming it in a real desert. He's trying to use as as few, like, like green screens and rely on CGI a lot less than a lot of modern movies and trying to use as many practical effects as possible, which is something he did for Blade Runner 2049, which I really appreciated. Because a lot of times in modern movies, and I'll talk about this later when I talk about modern horror, which they are like pretty guilty of this too, is that they'll just kind of put their actors on a green screen and they won't give their actors a lot to work with and they'll just kind of add it in with CGI later. And that can be an issue, especially to the performances and to whether or not you believe what you're seeing on screen is real. Now, like with Dennis Velenu, he did an amazing job in Blade Runner 2049 of really making the world feel real. And most of what you see on camera, according to Ryan Gosling, there was probably five sets. He could only count on like one hand the number of sets that actually had a green screen. Most of the time, most of those elements you see in the background of that movie, such as like the flying cars and some of the structures in the background they actually built, which I appreciate that he went that extra mile. Now, sometimes, as you'll see in a second, 
sometimes going that extra mile for realism can be somewhat detrimental to your actors, like emotionally and physically. Because if your whole movie is set on a desert planet, if you go that extra mile to shoot in a real desert, it'll be a look a lot more realistic and it will benefit the final product, I think. But shooting in a desert, in the middle of a desert, would be very taxing, very problematic for both the crew and the actors involved. Such as Jason Momoa, which you know him from Aquaman, he was in Game of Thrones, he was in the Conan remake a few years ago. Very likable actor. I've seen him come up for the ranks of just being a TV actor to being this very larger-than-life like personality, and also essentially making a joke of a DC superhero into somebody who's likable on screen, versus like what people thought of Aquaman beforehand. And out of most of the DCEU movies, Aquaman was one of the more enjoyable. He added that extra effort and that extra likability to the role that I believe that another actor probably couldn't have done the same way. So Jason Momoa, he's a real truth as far as being an actor goes. But most of the time when he's working on movies, he ha- especially like special effects heavy movies, he usually works on like a soundstage with like a lot of green screen. And he doesn't work on location very much. And that's where some of the issues came in recently where he, during like many, many takes of this one scene where he's running across the desert to meet the main character, Paul, he wanted to cry because the scenes were so physically intense. Because most of the movies he's worked for have just been shot against the green screen. And, like, he's in good shape. But having to do that in the middle of a real desert, having to deal with sandstorms, having to deal with sand in your eyes, having to deal with the physical exhaustion and running through, like, sweltering heat can get to be too much even for somebody like him. So he said, and it was funny because I've never run this much in my entire life. Dennis had me run across the desert because the sun was set in, and so we had to get that shot. And I had to run through this windstorm. I had to run to Timothy, so I couldn't see where I was going. All I wanted to do, I just didn't want to fall on my face, and I didn't want to disappoint the director. I'm not the best runner, but I was like, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. But inside, I was crying like a little baby. And for Jason Momoa to say that, you know that filming must have been extremely intense. Because he is definitely some is somebody who's very committed to his craft. And in this case, like even he was exhausted to that point. I'm definitely excited to see it. Oscar Isaac said that this movie is very shocking, very, like, unique. It'll be very innovative for what it's going for. And I'm curious to see it. Seems like they're doing a good job at being accurate to the book so far. It's been a while since I've read the book, but from seeing the trailers, it seems like they're doing a good job of making that extra effort to be accurate to the book. I'm not sure how popular this movie will be at the end of the day. Because you have things like John Carter, where John Carter was not that popular. It was, I thought it was a decent movie, they did an okay job, but lost a lot of money critically. Maybe in this case, because it has an ensemble cast of such a Timothy Chalamet and Jason Momoa and Zendaya, maybe that'll give it an extra push to actually get into the mainstream. Unlike the first movie with David Lynch, where kind of suffered from being too confusing and too alienating to more casual viewers just coming in and never having read the book, just coming in to see the movie on its own merits. Hopefully this movie will introduce those very strange concepts like the karate and the and the invisible shields that you can only use knives to penetrate and very kind of confusing concepts 
concepts like big space slugs and giant like worms in such a way that it doesn't alienate people and doesn't over confuse them. They don't need to read the novel in order to get the movie. That's that's my hope. If they're able to do that and it's able to get a decent amount, like a decent enough following, then maybe we could have sequels that could possibly turn into a franchise. So a random attempt at comedy is going to cut to a short commercial break with Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, and then we'll be back.
Welcome back to Random Attempt to Comedy for our main story tonight. We are talking about horror films, specifically modern horror. Very recently, we've had many new horror films actually trying to break new ground and do something creative. In contrast to many of the horror films of the past two decades, which have been extremely derivative and mostly forgettable in my opinion. An example to what I'm talking about is I felt like for a while there we were in a rut of essentially re like copying and recreating the same three movies. Insidious... Paranormal Activity, and Sinister. A lot of like more modern horror movies for a while there had the same tone and had a lot of the same beats as those horror movies, which for the most part, I like all three of those, but I felt like they just kept on like copying them. And Now, as far as Paranormal Activity goes, it was part of that kind of trend for a while where like there's a huge amount of found footage horror movies, which found footage horror can be done really well. And I feel like the first three Paranormal Activity did a good job of presenting like the found footage concept in one of the best ways it could be taken as far as like some kind of supernatural like horror movie. Found footage really gives you a unique perspective as far as like horror goes because it almost makes you feel like you're there. You don't feel like you're in a movie because a lot of it isn't edited. It's kind of like cut in like a real way where oh you're finding this this recording and you're finding this tape but found footage can be done really badly and for a while there we got into this trend of like everybody was doing found footage quarantine is a really bad found footage movie which was a remake of a spanish movie called wreck which is where it's worth checking out wreck is worth checking out quarantine isn't it's one of those movies where the characters have no reason to be carrying around the camera with them with the first few paranormal activity movies they did not rely on jump scares too much they and they had good build-up and good payoffs throughout the movie which is something that you want to do for a good horror movie a lot of like classic movies like the exorcist or like the thane rely on that they rely on like innovative techniques but when you get to four and then past that they've kind of played like all their hands on the table and it ends up being very derivative because they don't have anything new to like show like the audience and it ends up being just they're entirely relying on jump scares from that point onwards another movie like that like insidious and sinister i really liked the first insidious movie when i saw it it was scary to me i saw it when i think i was like 12 but like seeing it watching it again it still does have some good moments but i feel like it kind of loses out in certain respects by being some of the effects don't look as good and it ends up being a bit underwhelming and not as scary as i remember it sinister is a movie where it was almost like I liked some of the scares and I liked some of the concepts, but it was an almost entirely dragged down by the jump scares that whenever there's like a scary thing that's supposed to happen, there's that orchestra stain. And the thing about jump scares is that for like good horror, you try to you should try to avoid them as much as possible because jump scares can be a component of good horror. But one of the problems is if you overuse them, because essentially it's startling. It's not really scary. It just triggers that fight or flight response with you. And it's kind of automatic. Now, if you build it up and build like up the tension and you do it really well and you only have like one or two, then it can be very effective. But that can't be all you have. Like good horror movies, in my opinion, really have that kind of like sense of dread and that kind of um, psychological terror aspect to them. That kind of horror that will linger with you even after you leave the theater. Like The Shining. The Shining almost has no jump scares. Actually, now that I think about it, it doesn't have any jump scares in the way that newer horror movies do but it has this very haunting atmosphere and this kind of this sense of like 
the sense of terror and the sense of something feeling wrong that just sticks with you like just from the like horrifying and disturbing imagery not from just trying to shock for a while there i feel like blumhouse especially was just kind of riffing on those three movies and they were just kind of making movies that felt the same such as slender and like luigia was another one like the it was essentially what you would expect from a 2010 horror movie it's like the very stereotypical you could have made it by like committee vote and i feel like modern horror especially since it started to move away from that and get into more interesting stuff like it follows was took a very unique turn on like modern horror and i thought it did a really good job the quiet place or it the remake it or hereditary or get out all these movies were trying something new they weren't trying to do the same old hat and only rely on jump scares they actually had like real horror or hush especially like hush was a really good movie that i did not expect to like as much as i did but again it took a new concept and it made it innovative and interesting the whole idea of having a main character who's deaf being a slasher movie and using that in such a way where it makes the movie interesting and actually turns what would normally be a run-of-the-mill slasher movie into like a very horrifying experience because they're doing something new with it. There's all these extra factors that come with the main character being deaf and not being able to rely on a very important sense in order to get her out of that situation but she uses innovative thinking in order to try to survive against this very heartless monster i thought they did a really good job with it and it was probably the most unique horror film from the past few years that i've seen in recently and i was very happy with it at the end of the day so that's our show folks tune in next time on wednesday 4 to 5 p.m for more of a random attempt at comedy on wwsu 106.9 right state radio your one-stop shop for film news weird stories and all things random good night everybody